The following message is from the 2013 IBCD Summer Institute, Churches Equipped to Care. Good afternoon. I'm not as animated as John Sale, so you're going to have to put in some of your own work to uh, stay awake. And you have chosen a hard topic to which to listen. Uh, talk about caring in cases of adultery. Um, sadly, I've had more experience in caring in cases for adultery than I would like to have had. And yet, we have seen the Lord do really great and wonderful things for which we thank Him. So let me begin us with prayer. And if, I'm, if I behave, we might have time for questions at the end. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace to us. Though we have been spiritually adulterous, you have, by your grace, forgiven us and received us back. And we thank you for your grace in marriages where there has been great hurt and harm done that your power in the gospel can restore. Lord, as some here may be helping others care or may be going through something themselves, Lord, help us from your word to gain wisdom. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to have a ministry of restoration. We know we can do this only by your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, in the last year at IBCD, we've had some cases of Maryland faithfulness over the years. There are always a few in a given year, probably. Uh, you'll see them in your church. The statistics um, are very high in terms of, you know, you'll, you'll hear different things from different people. I'm not sure how you can gather super accurate statistics, but a very high percentages of marriage marriages will experience unfaithfulness on the part of at least one partner. And even among professing Christians, um, there is a lot of adultery, a lot of unfaithfulness. And um, we've dealt with cases where with church leaders, with seminary students, um, there's been estimates as high as 20% of clergy have been involved in sexual immorality uh, while they've been in that position. Um, sooner or later, it's going to happen in your church, and it may be the situation in which you least expect. And I have a vivid memory uh, many years ago now where I had counseled on a Monday night and usually by the time you get in counseling you're pretty tired. I'd counseled five hours, four or five hours, been to a class and for some reason I stopped by my office on the way home. That was before I even had a cell phone. That's how long ago it was. And a lady in our church is calling the church phone looking for me at nine o'clock at night and she is weeping and saying I've just learned that my husband has been having an affair. And I can tell you as I spent the next hour and a half on the phone talking to her, talking to her husband, that if you'd have taken the church directory and had people go through the directory and say, who is the last person you would think in this church would be involved in something like this, this is the guy that would have come up. And um, these cases are heartbreaking. When you get involved helping, it is emotionally draining, and it's often a roller coaster especially, I mean, both parties actually tend to go back and forth in terms of whether they want to keep trying. Um, I will say, though, there's one reason I'm very thankful for the privilege of counseling in cases of adultery. 
is that I don't think there's anything that happens in my life that is more effective in protecting me from sexual sin than seeing the results of sexual sin. You know, and Proverbs can describe honestly how the immoral woman in Proverbs 7 can be very attractive. She looks good. She smells good. She's offering you nice food. She's laying it all out that for you. But at the end it says, in the end you're like an ox to the slaughter going to your death. And by the time they get to me, uh, the ox has been slaughtered. And you see the brokenness of the innocent spouse, of the children, of the in-laws, of the church. Um, you know, situations with church leaders is just like somebody took a bomb and set it off right in the middle of that congregation and the shrapnel just hurts everybody. And I, I find that to be beneficial. There's no pleasure this life could ever offer me. There's no temptation that would ever be worth that much misery in my life and that of others. And yet even then, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, be careful if you think you stand, lest you fall. Uh, wisdom is good, but we need to be careful to walk with God very closely. And we need to be also careful in our own, to take care of our own marriages. The key in all of this is the grace of God. Uh, God alone can save people and God alone can save marriages. There's no skill I can teach you that will fix people. George, I thought, said it very well, that we can't be the Holy Spirit. Our job is to set forth the Word with Christ-like compassion, and we can offer help. And oftentimes when, when people come, uh, they are despairing, and it's good to tell them that you know, God's grace is sufficient you know, for the innocent spouse, that God, you know, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, one of our favorite biblical counseling verses, that God will not allow you to be tempted beyond, tempted beyond what you're able, and also that what's happened to you, even though it seems like you're the only person in the world, there's no temptation that's come upon you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. Uh, likewise, even for the guilty party, the reason he's done this is he's fallen into the lie that sin is better than Christ. You know, the Isaiah 55, why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? And he's, he's taken his heart and his mind off of the grace of God. But as Isaiah 55, 1 and 2 uh, warn us of the temptation of turning to something other than God for satisfaction, uh, the whole chapter is a wonderful chapter because later he says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And I'm so thankful to God that there is abundant pardon for sinners who turn to him with real repentance. And that we can offer that hope. And we have, we have seen sinners turned by God's grace. Um, as we begin, even in terms of you know, the opportunities of this, is... The first objective is really to restore both people, especially the guilty party, to the Lord more than to each other, uh, assuming that this person is a professing Christian. And even for the party that wasn't guilty, I might say the less guilty party because we're all sinners in marriage, there's nothing that the innocent party has done that caused the sin of the guilty party, but there's still a sinner who needs grace. Um, but even for the the person who has not committed adultery, to see that your role in this, Galatians 6.1, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, restore him gently, each looking to yourself that you will not be tempted. 
bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. And so to see that, you know, I don't know if this is going to end up with him repenting. I don't know if this is going to end up saving your marriage, but I, I do know what your role in this is, is that your focus now should be to restore this person to Christ. And one thing I did in preparing this talk was I asked uh, in a couple of the couples that we've been helping in the last year, what are the most valuable things you learned that helped you to get through this? And there was one man whose wife had been unfaithful. And he said, it really helped me a great deal to realize that at this time, especially the first meeting, uh, that my goal in this situation is not to heal, it's not to recover, it's not about me, that God has given me the opportunity, the privilege, the responsibility to see if I can be the instrument in the restoration of my wife to Christ, to restore her to the Lord. Um, Dave Harvey in uh, Center Say I Do, some of you are familiar with that. We've got the audios downstairs and on our website. You know, it's so crucial. He makes a little triangle where it says that when your spouse sins against you, and this could be just impatient or something, but when your spouse sins against you, the temptation is to see it simply on this level, and of course then you want to judge them or retaliate. It's about you. But when you see that your spouse's sin is against the Lord, not against you, and that also, because the temptation for the guilty party is to feel so wounded that, you know, what was wrong with my body or my relationship with you, you know, what was wrong with me, or this has been done to me. What did David say in Psalm 51? He says, against you and you only have I sinned after he committed adultery and murder. And so for the party that hasn't committed adultery to recognize that this is a sin against God, much more than against you, and your role, whether this person repents or not, whether your marriage is saved or not, what you want to do is to help to be an instrument to restore this person to God. It's not, and even, it's not primarily about his relationship to you or her relationship to you. That, every marriage has flaws. We could take any marriage where there hasn't been adultery and you could point out the sins of each party. Uh, every marriage has weaknesses. But this is, someone who commits adultery is saying much more about his relationship with God than he is saying about his relationship with his spouse. Um, and what each of us needs in the midst of this is the Lord. Um, when you initially get involved, kind of thinking about a first session and remembering my first sessions in these situations, um, you know, initial data gathering, one thing you're trying to find is exactly what has happened. And I don't want to know exactly what's happened to some perverse detail, but in terms of, of categories, uh, some people will make excuses in saying, as a former president did, no, I did not have sex with that woman, when he did things sexual with her that were not intercourse. And people will, adulterers tend to want to minimize and excuse. And so there has to be, you know, working towards what has really happened here, uh, no minimizing, no excusing. And likewise, in terms of defining sexual sin, sexual sin is any sexual expression outside of marriage. Fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. The marriage bed should be held in high honor among all. And so I've had men who have been involved physically with other men while they were married. We've had uh, all kinds, you know, things short of intercourse involved. Some guy uh, connects on Facebook with a girlfriend from high school and they meet in a park and neck and pet like they were 17-year-old un unbelievers. And... Um, so, but you, you're, you're trying to find out kind of what has happened, and there, there are kind of a few different categories of what you're going to see. Uh, there's one type of situation, again, happened where 
a man and a woman are in a team working in ministry, in a music ministry, and they have rehearsals, and they're working very closely in that music ministry. And one night, somehow, there's attraction that's confessed. By the way, in almost all these situations, it's kind of like one of them will say something, like, I feel really guilty, but I feel attracted to you. And that's just like lighting a bomb off, okay? <laughs> Never say that if you think that. <laughs> That's like the worst thing you should ever say. And they're expecting to get slapped, and instead they get hugged, and on they go. So in this very situation, they went out back to his apartment or something. They came together sinfully. The woman goes straight home and confesses to her husband. We've actually seen a couple of those cases where something happens as a one-time deal, and she's horrified, which is another factor in terms of how is, how is the, the sin exposed. Um, other times where a man is at a family event and some distant relative is there that they'd been attracted in high school. Again, he's some old guy like me probably. And in this family event, his wife didn't come along and they hook up overnight. And that was it. He would say that's the only time something like that has happened in his marriage. But now even it's a few years later, he's never told his wife. So that, that's one type of thing where there's kind of a one-time hookup. There are other situations where it's an ongoing affair, where really it's creating a substitute for marriage, where they're spending lots of time together, there's emotional attachment, there are promises being made. Part of uncovering the sin is it's not just we had sex or we had sex this often for this period of time, but there's usually a relationship established, especially, quite frankly, among people who profess to be Christians uh, they're going to start making plans together. Well, you know, trying to say, well, lie to themselves. Well, my marriage was really no good. It's going to end anyway. It's all falling apart. And, and typically, you know, there's, there are plans being made for a future together somehow. It's just when are they going to tell the other spouse? When are they going to move on? But it, it becomes a relationship. Now, sometimes one person who's often the more powerful person who's often male will be promising said relationship when really he has no intent of following through which is compounding his sin with a lie. Uh, very often, actually, what you want to find out when there was a relationship like that, we've had you know, cases of a man, he travels to a certain place, he finds a girl there, meets a girl there, every time he goes there, he's with her, and the question will ask, what's in it for her? <laughs> uh, why would this younger woman want to hang out with this middle-aged ball guy uh, when he travels? And, and, well, she's expecting something. It could be that she's expecting financial help now. It's often, and I've actually, one time, I was actually a seminary student confessing over the phone, and I could hear the woman screaming and yelling at him when he was breaking it off from her with myself and the wife present as the confession, or as the break-off was being made. Basically, you're breaking your word to me. You promised, and you know, we were going to be together. I actually had one case where there was a, a situation in adultery where we had a visitor to our church, and it looked like the woman of Proverbs 7 had walked off the pages and into our pew. <laughs> and I wondered, why is this woman here, and who is she? And she comes up to me afterwards, and you can smell her 20 feet away, um, not dressed like the other ladies in our church, and she wants to talk to me. And she showed me a ring on her finger and said, this guy, and I'd been counseling a man in our church who had been unfaithful to his wife, trying to save the marriage, and she said, this ring is the promise that guy who's in your church made to me, and I expect him to fulfill it. He, you know, he was appealing to me as a pastor to make the guy follow through with his word to divorce his wife and marry her. Um, but when it comes down to confessing, 
it's much more than sex. Um, there are other people, uh, one man who, uh, some people, it's just lots of sexual encounters. It's an addiction, it's a slavery to sex without relationship. It could be someone who's suave enough to get it for free, or it could be somebody who's paying for it, either directly or indirectly. Um, and, and, you know, on like that, there are some cases where it's an affair of the heart, and they're, they claim they're Christians. Maybe, again, sometimes they're working in ministry in the same ministry, and so the most they do is they pray together holding hands for a long time, and, and yet they have, the husband has very little interest in talking to his wife, being close to her because he's found his soulmate, and you know, he knows he shouldn't have sex with his soulmate, but when leaving and cleaving, as I understand it in the Bible, that is an adulterous relationship, just the same. He has given his heart and has given himself emotionally to her, creating a closeness and a oneness that was only designed for marriage. So uh, there's phone sex. There's Part of having a counseling center is sooner or later you see everything. You have what happened, you know, what you see in a counseling center is a month and what you might see in a, count, in a church in two or three years. Uh, so what's been going on? How long has it happened? What's the nature of the relationship? And then uh, how was the sin exposed? What percentage would you say happens when people just come forward and confess on their own? Answer, very small. Uh, I mentioned that one woman as an exception. The overwhelming majority of cases is they get caught or they get busted. Now, on the one hand, that makes you less optimistic, right? It would be better if the person finally felt so guilty they couldn't live with themselves and they came forward. On the other hand, David was busted in 2 Samuel 12, and God, in his great mercy, gave repentance. So if someone is caught, um, and we've, I've had lots of cases, and part of it is your sin will find you out. When a man sows, this he will reap. And there's a credit card bill, there's a phone record, there's something. In one case, the other woman actually left a handwritten note on the windshield of the wife. Again, kind of staking her claim. Your husband promised to spend the rest of his life with me. Would you please get out of the way? Um, but even if someone is busted, God can bring repentance. God can, like Nathan with David. But it's a much harder road. And you're wondering, is the repentance real? So when you're beginning, uh, something you're trying to establish is, are both parties open to reconciliation? And in the beginning, there's just this m rush of emotions. Uh, the innocent party is shocked betrayed, fearful, angry. On one level, she's desperate to rescue the marriage and, and the spouse. On the other level, she's ashamed. I can never trust him again. Um, and, and sometimes I've seen, and it, we've actually, I've had as many cases of female adultery as male adultery in, among Christians lately, but it's almost like you go back and forth between I'll never live with him again and I can't live without him. And there's only one place to which she can turn, is that, and that is the Lord. And the Psalms are very good. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me. Horrors overwhelm me. I'm reading in Psalm 55. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me. Thus I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend. Now, that verse has multiple meaning. One is, again, it's your best friend who's betrayed you, the person you trusted more than anybody else. But there's comfort because Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed by someone close to him. 
and he has compassion and, and, and her hope or his hope has to be in the Lord. But there can be all kinds. There can be guilt. It's my fault. I've been a rotten wife. I've been consumed with my job or the kids and I drove him into her arms and there can be revenge. I'm going to find a lawyer and clean him out. There could be begging and sometimes there's excessive begging where almost willing to tolerate the, the sin because she's so afraid of, of being divorced or being alone. I have a woman whose husband was repeatedly adulterous. She's saying, I don't want to be a divorced woman. Um, well, she's going to be a woman with a disease before long. Uh, the guilty party also, I think usually they're just kind of in a state of shock when they're caught. It's like they've been living this double life and they've been acting like, like David in First Samuel 11, right? In Second Samuel 11, that he went on acting like he was king and everything was cool even though he'd impregnated a woman, killed her husband, stole her, married her, um, and, and the jig is up. And a lot of times they're just kind of just in a state of being stunned. And I think one thing that a guilty party can feel is a sense of despair, that for someone to get in a position where they've been living a double life for a period of time, be it with one prostitute after another or one hookup after another or an ongoing relationship, as you've had to tell yourself a lot of lies and to believe a lot of lies, to lie about your spouse and run her down or him down, to lie about the fact you can bow with it before God, and it, it's going to take a while. That heart has gotten really hard. I almost, I've almost tried like it's just this block of ice, as cold as ice can be, and it's going to take some time for that thing to thaw if God grants repentance. I love reading Psalm 51 and David is broken and I've seen people who have that kind of emotional reaction but I think in terms of a when David says restore unto me the joy of your salvation and remove not your spirit from me I think part of what he's saying is he doesn't have that joy back yet and that there is a process I'll even talk about it in terms of pursuing repentance and, and, and it's a pursuing repentance even if you don't feel like it and part of the feeling may be it is just hopeless. I knew if I ever did this, I knew my husband would never talk to me again. Um, and sometimes it can be wanting to escape even through taking one's own life by abandoning the faith, moving away. It can just be too hard. Uh, something that I try to do at this stage, and I actually have a recent case I've been dealing with, has been unfaithfulness in both parties to some degree, uh, more so in one than the other, is just encouraging them to slow down. Um, see what God may do. If right now you cannot imagine forgiving your spouse, can you just agree to try to work through these issues? Can you agree uh, not to pursue, you know, sometimes it'll be just a delay divorce, and part of that would be if it's the man who's the provider. Give your wife sufficient care that she doesn't have to go to a lawyer to get you to do what you're supposed to do, and show that you're con more concerned about her than you, and work on your own soul, Take care of your kids. I try to buy time. This is actually something that happened recently. A woman came in. Her husband has been re repeatedly unfaithful. He's also been very angry at times. He claims to have really made a turn to the Lord. She's hopeful that might have happened, but she was kind of steeled in her heart. She's done. It's happened too many times. And I just said, would you agree just not to, just to cut off the possibility of any other man for a year's time and to focus during that year first on, on your own relationship with the Lord Second, on you taking care of your kids, and likewise for your husband, and then to see what God may do in changing him, changing your heart, and rebuilding. Um, sometimes that, I think, would mean a kind of separation, which is less than ideal, but it's still better than giving up and being divorced forever.
And, and one tension I actually deal with that I understand that Jesus says in Matthew 19 is my understanding that adultery is allowed as a ground for divorce. You do not have to divorce in case of adultery, but it is allowed as a ground for divorce. And I think the innocent party has the right to decide whether or not to grant full forgiveness. Uh, my understanding is in your heart you can have an attitude of forgiveness as a sinner saved by grace, but in terms of saying, I forgive you in the sense that I'm going to eliminate this as a possible ground for divorce, and I'm going to continue in our marriage, and I'm never going to use it again. You know, the forgiveness, I'm going to continue in this covenant, even though you have violated the term so severely that Jesus, who hates divorce, and said, what God has joined, let no man separate. The, the party that didn't commit adultery has that choice to make. Uh, in my mind, there's kind of a tension if you're living together, sharing a bed while that choice is being made. I think sometimes if, if you're thinking seriously, if the, if the innocent party is thinking seriously about divorce, they're not convinced that the uh, other spouse is repentant. It seems kind of strange to say, I'm going to continue as if we're married and enjoy the privileges of marriage, and then six months, a year later, I might decide I want to divorce you anyway. In my mind, what you're saying is you've broken the covenant, and it may be I'm going to see if, if God gives you repentance. And this is a wisdom issue. If somebody takes a different position, I can't say it's an absolute, but just it seems to make most sense to me that if, if you're on the verge of saying I'm going to divorce you, it's strange to live as husband and wife in terms of the intimacy of marriage. So the, to me, the forgiveness part, when forgiveness is granted, then you're saying, first of all, the statute of limitations is run out on the previous crime. I have forgiven you of what you did so thoroughly that I will never hold it against you in terms of to divorce you. It will no longer be held as a grounds for divorce. And now our marriage is going to be rebuilt and we will come together as husband and wife. But there can be a time, and again, I can't from the Bible say thou shalt not live in the same house or the same room, but my advice would be you're in that kind of limbo state where you're, she's not fully submitted to him. She's got the option to end the marriage, but she's wanting to consider the possibility of showing mercy and forgiving. And she's got that kind of limbo state where because of his sin, once she has some, she has the power in the situation, whether to use that right or not. And there can be a time, but even then, I'm often trying to buy delay. And I was actually very thankful because when I made this, it was late in the session, the first session with this couple, where I proposed the delay, and my observers noticed that she was so hard and so determined. It's like, we're here for you to help us agree how to divorce, essentially, is what she was saying. We're here to, so we can you know, make an agreement without lawyers. And, and by the end, her heart had softened a great deal. And, and the idea, you know, just saying, you know, are you willing to just take a break? You know, divorce gives one the right, and in my understanding, divorce is you're freed from that obligation. You could choose to enter into another relationship. Are you free to forgo that for some period of time, get all your men out of your mind, and see what God may do? And, and by the way, part of you know, another thing that the couples that I've been counseling were saying is that one of them wrote that the most important thing was in the very first session to give hope because people feel hopeless. And just you feel like you're in despair, but God has done this before and God can do it again. And so let's see what God will do. And giving examples of how we've seen God work in other situations.
encourage them to, to not function as man and wife and perhaps share the, the same bed, but stay in the same house and they have to work out those details because I can't say, I can't define clearly from Scripture what the limbo period looks like. Adultery has been committed. My advice would be that if you're on the verge of filing for divorce and ending the marriage on the grounds that that person has given you, my advice would be that there's some period of time, hopefully not a very long period of time. The year example I gave is after multiple adulteries. They're already living apart, actually. And I'm just saying to both of them, will you focus on your own spiritual life, cooperating and taking care of your kids, seeing if you can rebuild a relationship before you move on to whatever is next. Uh, if they're already together, it, this is something that could happen fairly quickly. Uh, they can be in the same house. It's, it's up, I, I can't compel them exactly. I'm just saying it seems strange to me. It's, on the, it's in the realm of wisdom to continue to function sexually as husband and wife, even though the wife any day now could say, you're out, or the husband could say, you're out. If they choose to do that, they're not committing adultery. But it seems to me, part of coming back together again sexually is an expression of the forgiveness. That it, if it hasn't been granted, and I can't compel you, the Bible gives you a right to divorce, so I can't compel you to forgive in that sense. Um, but, but again, building hope, and the hope has to be in God, not in the other person. <laughs> Don't trust in men, Jeremiah 17, and make the flesh your strength. Trust in God. You'll be like the tree planted by the water. He will sustain you. He will not allow you to be tried beyond what you're able. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Um, God will help you. God will help you grow through this. Adultery is not the unforgivable sin. And again, we're not wanting to go back to the way your marriage was before it happened. We are hopeful that God will make your marriage much better than it was before it happened because the underlying sins and weaknesses will be dealt with. And, and God will meet your need. And that could be if your spouse, sometimes the guilty spouse is continuing in the relationship after it's been exposed. And for the innocent, it's to say God will sustain you without that person if he chooses to go in that other direction. Don't make an idol of, of him or of, of her. Um, find your security in him. He will take care of you, and he is working. And then plead with God for wisdom. And the focus has to be on pleasing God, regardless of what the other person does. It's our aim, whether absent or present, to be pleasing to him, 2 Corinthians 5, 9. The aim is not to get her back or him back. Um, the aim is to do what pleases God, and depending on what, the, you, as far as is possible to you, to be at peace with all men. It may be impossible for you to fix it by yourself. You can. I've seen a case where the innocent party offers much grace, and the guilty refuses. There also can be a case where the guilty seems genuinely repentant, and the person who didn't commit adultery will not forgive and take back. So, your objective here is to please God, and then you have to leave it to Him. I think. This is a place where godly counsel in the church is very important. Um, a wise man is he who listens to counsel. Never in your life have you thought less straight than when you're going through this, okay? Your, your emotions are whirring all over the place, and that's where godly elders and godly older women like Titus too to help you work this through, to keep you grounded can be very important. Um, helping the adulterer, and some of this we'll have to um, go over in kind of a summary fashion. Adulterers will give many reasons and excuses for why this has happened. Some of them are influences. I mean, some have been in homes where there was immorality and, and pornography. Uh, some, before they were Christians, were engaged in all kinds of sexual sin. 
Uh, some are in hard marriages and you know, your spouse is so busy with her career or the kids or the husband is so busy with his career and she's being neglected and, and all of these can be temptations. But back to 1 Corinthians 10.13, 10, none of these temptations compelled you to sin. God gave you a way of escape that wasn't sin. And, and so you are responsible. So you know, we have situations in our lives, all of us, that can be more tempting. Um, but it's really a failure to listen to God's wisdom. Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 talk about people falling into sin and adultery and, and, and the sins of our heart. And a lot of it is the spiritual idolatry. Isaiah 55, you go drink at the polluted waters from the broken cisterns. You think, this is going to make me happy. This is going to satisfy the emptiness, the loneliness. The world tells me that I should be having exhilarating romantic sexual experiences. I'm not getting it in my marriage I'll be happy if I do this, um, rather than turning to God who alone can fully satisfy you. And even in marriage, we can be sexual idolaters where we're saying, well, I have to have amazing sex this often, this way, in a romantic context with my spouse, or else I have to go find it somewhere else because everybody's got to have that. No spouse can meet those expectations. We have to turn to the Lord because each of us is married to a sinner who will fail us sometimes. Adultery is a spiritual problem. It's out of the heart that come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, etc. Uh, the adulterer must first repent before God. Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 are David's sin, is uh, his psalms of repentance, a heartfelt sorrow. He needs to recognize that his sin is primarily against God. Often the adulterer is so taken his focus off of God, he's He's thinking, well, I've sinned against my spouse, and that's the focus, and he doesn't like her anyway. It doesn't matter. But, again, he is, again, against you and you only have I sinned. When, when Joseph was tempted, how can I do this and sin against God? He's been living with a, a sexual idolatry. He's been de you know, deceiving himself and putting God to the test. And he's been unfaithful to a covenant made before God. What God has joined, let no one separate. And likewise in Proverbs 2, how she forgets, the immoral woman forgets the covenant of her God. And so his violation of God's covenant is a grievous sin against him. And of course, it's demonstrating where his heart is and what he is seeking. Likewise, there needs to be a recognition. Well, how did you get into this position? James 1, lust conceived gives birth to sin and sin results in death. The, you know, it's like I birth, you know, lust conceived is very tiny. And hearing the stories of sexual sinners, adult, I, you know, there were many, many thoughts, months usually. I think as John MacArthur says, when a man falls into sexual sin, he usually does not fall very far. It's, it could be pornography, it could be romance novels, it could be daydreams, it could be sinful discontented thoughts about one's own spouse and bitterness setting in, and I deserve this, and so... Your mind has been swimming in lies, uh, flirtations, and the act itself is the result usually of a long gestation period. Um, there needs to be an acceptance of blame, no excuses. Uh, a verse I use is Proverbs 28, 13. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. He who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Uh, the adulterer typically lies to himself. He tends to try to justify what he's did. He tries to minimize uh, what he has done. And he doesn't understand even the lying that he's done to his own soul. Again, sometimes 
person will say, I'm not feeling repentant. I say, well, the fact you're here shows you must be at least a little bit repentant because it's hard to be here. And so, again, you're pursuing the repentance. You're pursuing the, the renewed heart for which David prays. And so keep staying away from that other person. Keep trying to build reconciliation and serve your spouse and your kids and draw near to God and pray that this is not always, God doesn't always zap us with a renewed heart. This may be a process over time as you draw back closer to God. You, it took you a long time to walk this far to the far country, and it may be a bit of a journey to come back. That's just a reality that others have experienced as well. And there's actually a woman I can remember saying that to several months ago when she was busted, she was caught, and her husband is devastated. And she's there because she knew that was where she should be, and it's kind of like, where else can I go? What else can I do? But she wasn't feeling it. She, the feelings hadn't changed that much. But after some months, we could see that God had really changed her heart towards her husband and his towards her. And it was actually, you know, in counseling, you, you talk about halo data. Jay Adams talked about your body language. And they both were both sitting there almost like prisoners initially. I know we need to be here. I know I should work on this. I know I should try to forgive. I know I should try to rebuild my marriage. But by the end, they actually had the warmth towards each other. You would expect a couple who were about to get married to have. You could see in the body language. And God had done a great work. And then when you get to see that now and then, it gives you hope for others that you can share with others. Um, again, there has to be a clean break. He needs to see the other person as God sees her or him. Uh, Proverbs is really good about this. In Proverbs 2, it describes the strange woman. And wisdom, Proverbs says, will deliver you from the strange woman. And one way wisdom does is wisdom gives you, and some of you have heard my illustration before, it's like if you had glasses that would make women other than your own wife look like dangerous monsters or something. And you see them, especially the, the strange woman, as like a threat to you that could destroy you instead of seeing the attractiveness and the beauty that Proverbs 7 describes. Well, wisdom will give you that. And, and so often they're sympathetic. And they'll even say, well, I can't break off the relationship because it'll hurt her. You know, she's going to have a hard time. Or, you know, I feel sorry for him. And... You realize this person is the strange woman. She doesn't belong. She's a flatterer. She's a person who doesn't respect God's covenant. And her house sinks down to the death. So you need to see them as God sees them, as, uh, as an enemy who, whom Satan was trying to use to destroy you. And then there needs to be a sudden sharp break with no lingering relationship. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it far from you. And again, sometimes it'll be, well, you know, we can just be friends. No, you can't. You, you won't even want to see each other again. Uh, as if, you, if you're repentant of this, flee. Don't go near her door, Proverbs 5. And I've actually seen, in, in, in one of the recent cases, a man decided he has moved like 2,000 miles away. He, he determined the only way he could be, the best way to save his marriage was to quit his job and to get a job in another state and just to get away, as, rather than being even in the same county with the woman he'd been spending time with. Now, that is indicative, hopefully, of heartfelt repentance instead of worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow says, I can still be friends. It means you get rid of keys, phone numbers. It means you become accountable for Facebook, email, time, location. Uh, on my cell phone now, I've got this Find My Friends app, and so... My wife and I have it installed, and we can see where the other person is all the time. I mean, it works for me. I'm jogging, and she knows when I'll get home or something. But um, 
anything it takes and in a way that keeps you from getting sucked back in and no no rationalization. You owe nothing to this person who is stealing from your spouse and from God. Um, and then there must be forgiveness. After you've sought forgiveness from God, Matthew 5, if your brother has something against you, even if you're on the way to the altar, leave, you know, make things right. Like the prodigal son, I have sinned against heaven and against you. And one of the tests of, forgive, of confession is you confess more than your spouse knows. Uh, what I find is people will confess... It's like peeling an onion, getting through to find out what this person has really done. Because when you find something, oh, yeah, I did that too, it tends to be minimized. And, oh, well, I even the guy that had the one-night stand when he was at the family event, he says, well, I want to tell my wife it would hurt her too much. Buddy, you hurt your wife when you went and had sex with your third cousin or whatever it was in a one-night stand four years ago. That's what hurt her. You broke the covenant. She has a right to know because you, you broke your wedding vow. She has a right to decide whether to forgive you or not. Um, you're going to have to, even, I was reading a book written by some Christian psychologists, and even they, from their perspective, were describing how um, keeping that secret is going to, is, they will say, from their perspective, observing, driving a couple apart. And uh, there has to be forgiveness sought and reconciliation uh, pursued, even though it may be risky. Um, we have had a case where someone came in to somebody other than myself for counseling and confesses he's having an affair, but he, he just kind of wants help in kind of getting out on his terms, his time, his way. And the counselor says, well, you need to go tell your wife. You don't tell your wife, I will. He says, well, if you do that, I'll sue you because I thought we had abs I thought this was confidential and I was safe here. Well, we actually, when you come to IBCD, we make someone sign an agreement that our confidentiality agreement is that if Matthew 18 or elsewhere in Scripture tells us we have a duty to expose your sin, we will expose it. If you've committed a crime, we will report it to the authorities, especially if it's a crime on a minor of some kind. And if, you're, you know, if you've committed that kind of sin, we will make you pursue it or we will ourselves do what the Bible compels us to do. We're not Roman Catholic priests in a confessional. Um, the greatest sin that needs to be dealt with, and there are many sins, but the greatest sin that needs to be dealt with is the loss of trust. I've heard this line more than once. I could forgive the sex, but I don't know if I can forgive the lies, or if I can ever trust him again. Um, and that's why the lies have to stop. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, the proverb says. No minimizing, no dodging. You're honest with the confession. And there are many other things that need to be confessed. Many of you are familiar with the peacemaker material. When there's been adultery, we go through the seven A's of confession. <laughs> and it takes a long time to do. But, you know, if, address everyone involved. Children are affected. In-laws are affected. Sometimes people in the church are affected. Avoid if, but, and maybe. Uh, purging of any excuse. Uh, your sex drive isn't an excuse. Your wife being eight months pregnant is not an excuse. Your spouse not being attentive to you is not an excuse. There is no excuse for sin. And, and the excuse, the if, but, and maybes nullify the entire confession. Admit specifically. It's not just I did wrong. And that's where, again, the lies. Generally speaking, affairs are expensive financially. I've seen a wife cry out, you know, you won't let me buy the kids new clothes? <laughs> and you bought her a car? <laughs> or you're making her car payments? the wasted money, the thousands of lies, 
the overwhelming burden being laid on the innocent spouse, which kind of gets to the next one, acknowledging the hurt. When someone's forgiving, they want you to have made some effort to have understood how badly you've hurt them, how it feels. And if you care, if you're really repentant, you'll, you'll want to try not just to verbally express, but to actually acknowledge, I understand how this, how it'd be hard to think, can you ever trust me again? I understand why it would be so hard for a man or a woman you know, in terms of what was wrong with me that you felt like you needed to go somebody else to be satisfied. Um, and then accepting the consequences, getting tested for STDs. And part of it is just altering your behavior and accept the consequences go together. I mean, one would be, I deserve to be divorced. You have every right to do it. I'm begging for grace. But I deserve to be alone for what I've done. But then alter your behavior is, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to take care of you. Um, I will never travel alone again. I will always bring you or one of the kids with me. I will change jobs, anything, and then ask for forgiveness. Uh, the confession should be, say, how specific. Sometimes the innocent party wants details beyond what's appropriate. Categories that I was talking about earlier was that a one-night stand was an ongoing affair. Were there emotional promises made in a relationship, or was it just sex? Uh, but all the details of what people did sexually are going to be unprofitable. They're going to create mental images that will cause hurt and bitterness in the future. That's where counsel can often help in terms of if you get stuck on what to share. And it's often the guilty, the innocent party that keeps asking question after question after question. What did she wear? What hotel did you go to? Where did you eat? That on the one hand, the repentant party wants to be honest, doesn't want to put them off. But on the other hand, there could be a, a desire for disclosure that will just be damaging for the future. Uh, discretion is needed there. Um, and then there needs to be a, change, a plan for change, like I said, accountability with men, accountability for time. And then just to prepare the guilty spouse, there's going to be a temptation to go back. You've given your heart to that person. You've given your body to that person. You're going to be tempted to feel sorry for yourself. You're going to be tempted to be, feel hopeless. Your heart may feel cold towards God. Your heart may even feel colder towards your spouse. And you have to live not by feelings, but by faith. Uh, trusting in God and not leaning on your own understanding. Um, you may be troubled because your spouse whom you harmed is emoting all over you sometimes. And she's crying, and then she's yelling, and then she, you know, that's hard to deal with. And just to be very patient and gracious uh, through that process. And then the focus has to be on pleasing God, not getting your marriage back. You may not get your marriage back. You're not going to know for a long time. That's part of being patient, by the way. That's maybe part of the consequence. You may spend months not knowing whether you get your wife back or your husband back. Uh, but do what pleases God. And quite frankly, if, and I would say this to the other person as well, is this, if this doesn't work, you want to have a clear conscience that you did all you could. And then helping the victim. Uh, the non-adulterer also must come to grips with his sin. Um, trials expose our weaknesses and our sins. Fear, anger, worry. Um, your sin does not excuse your spouse committing adultery, but if you made the temptation greater, that can still be confessed. If the wife says, I realize I was so consumed with the kids, I went to bed every night at 8 when they went to bed, I locked the door, whatever she did... <laughs> 
that did not excuse him doing what he did, but she can seek forgiveness for her sin, you know, not you know, neglecting the marriage, whatever it was. Um, and then there's often sin that needs to be confessed once you found out. Okay, after she found out, she took his computer and threw it into the swimming pool. And, you know, then she screamed and yelled and hit. Those were ungodly responses to sinful behavior. And I think Steve Byers, I mentioned last night in this Putting the Past in Its Place book, that um, when people sin against you, you can respond righteously or unrighteously. <laughs> and there's no, back to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. You didn't have to throw his computer in the swimming pool or drive his Mercedes off a cliff or whatever else you decided to do. And those are still sins you need to confess to God and to Him. God has not appointed you to show vengeance, and God has had much mercy upon you in Christ. You're not the judge. Even you know, Joseph said to his brothers, Am I in the place of God? The answer is no. God did not appoint you to judge Him. And if you remember God is the judge, that should help. You talked about timing of that. Did you mention that last night with the Jews too, and um, bringing in the issue of their personal sin or the person's conviction? I get, you know, it's just a question about I think some of this you're, I think what some of the guys were talking about earlier, you're kind of gauging your counselee. If your counselee is weeping uncontrollably and not knowing whether they're going to stay another minute in the counseling room, much less in the marriage, it's probably the same way. You need to deal with your sin too. But another case where they both came in, they were from a good church, they knew a lot of truth. I thought it was important in the first meeting. So it's really where, you know, you're, you're kind of trying to be sensitive. How much can they take right now? But I think as early as possible, Matthew 5, 23 and 24 applies to the innocent spouse as well. If your brother has something against you, you go quickly to them. And so this often exposes, you know, and again, if there's guilt and it may be real guilt, then it needs to be dealt with biblically first before God and then before the spouse. It can be the husband, too. He was so busy with work and even ministry that his wife felt neglected. And here's a guy who had lots of time and was compassionate. And he, uh, this actually happened in a case I'm thinking of, not to mention he was a grumpy guy. And so just always grumpy and just kind of simmering with a little bit of anger. And that, in her sinful heart, she used that as an excuse to go after the wrong guy. But he needed to confess not that he's guilty of causing it, that he was guilty of tempting her by not loving her in a Christ-like way. That's also, I mean, it's good for both of them on a very practical level. Um, she needs also to see her, her party's sin as God sees it. Back to what I said, one of the most helpful things is just to see your spouse sinned against God. It's not about you. It's not because you've gained 20 pounds since you got married. It's not because, you know, it is a, anything else. It is a sin against God. And then your job is to restore him or her to God. Um, and then also your role is not to judge. Your role is not on this level. You did this to me. I'm going to do this to you. But to look at this person, and we all know what it is to be a sinner who has struggled and stumbled, who needs grace and help. And so your job is to be used as an instrument of God to seek to restore that person to Christ. Again, leaving it all on the table. You know, If, if this doesn't work, you want to have been... Christ-like to that person to show them a way of grace. Um, one of the most common questions we get is, how can I know if he or she is really repentant? 2 Corinthians 7 talks about there is a repentance without regret leading to salvation. This is all according to the world. 
but there's a, sorry, the word according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, verse 10, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. And he goes on to describe a godly sorrow producing an earnestness and an indignation and fear and longing and zeal. And uh, I think I have a list there that you see a lot of worldly sorrow in these situations. How hard this is for me. It's Cain saying, my punishment is too great for me to bear. Dude, you killed your brother. God himself counseled you that, that Satan was, you know, anger was about to take over you and you did not listen and you deserve to die and you're complaining that an exile is worse than you can bear. He's not repentant. He's just sorry for the consequences. And, and it's just, you know, it, and they become very impatient. Like, well, she needs to make up her mind now whether she's going to have me back. And, or I'm tired of not being trusted. I should be trusted. If you're repentant, you say, I don't even trust myself. Instead of demanding to be trusted right now and very quick to give up. Well, this is just too hard. We'll just get a divorce. Godly sorrow is focused on the other person. Considering others more important than yourself. Philippians 2, we heard last night that what matters is her. I've heard her a great deal. Whatever money she needs, whatever help she needs around the house, it's about helping her and helping the kids. And you know, there's patience. She may need time. I'm willing to take as long as it takes. You are worth waiting for to have back, and I'm willing to do whatever you need so this is as easy as possible for you and not as painful. And also, it's, it's I hate what I did. It's not just, boy, this really hurts because of the consequence, but I, I wish I hadn't done it. I'm brokenhearted over my double-mindedness. I'm fully responsible. There's no excuse for what I did, and I would rather die than do this again. I actually had one guy who wanted to ask his wife's forgiveness, but he didn't want her to forgive him. You know, I, he, you know, he kind of wanted to make things right and move on, be able to go off with the other girl. Um, and then I want accountability. I want, and the main accountability ideally shouldn't be the wife, by the way. She didn't really want to be his mother. But, you know, with a pastor, with a godly man, and I want, I want to be discipled, and I want to be accountable for my time and my thoughts and internet use and texting uh, I want to be kept safe from my own sin and if you're not sure well, if you're not sure if someone's repentant well I think that's where again godly counsel I can probably be more objective in a situation like this than a woman who really wants him to be repentant or a woman who doesn't want him to be, re be repentant I think there's something to be said for erring on the side of grace I can never say yes I know he's repentant because only God knows a heart I can never say she'll never do it again I can't say you'll never do it. But I think there is a point where if someone outwardly appears to be repentant and there's been some persistence in that, I think a risk can be worth taking. What's the worst thing that happens? You showed too much grace and you got burned for it. I still think that honors God. I can't make you do it. But if you, because he appeared to be repentant, he, you know, he was saying and doing the right things, it went on for a period of time, others seemed to be convinced of his sincerity, none of us can say for sure he is sincere, but if you do that and then he burns you, you may choose never to get burned again, but I don't think you've ruined your life or harmed yourself and your children. I think rather that you can say even to your children, I went the extra, not just one mile, but ten miles, trying to save this marriage, trying to show grace, and don't be fearful of being burned again, but trust God. Um, some people try to do penance, <laughs> trying to work a program, do works, you know, all 
you know, and repentance is outward, and it's to please men primarily. Repentance is of the heart. And again, while waiting to see if there is repentance, some kind of separation, some period of separation may be appropriate. Um, I've already kind of dealt with this, that I think if the guilty party is not repentant, if they want my advice, I would say my advice would be don't restore the relationship fully. I mean, you can have an attitude of grace. As one who's been forgiven much, you can have an, a heart of forgiveness to that person. Not, you know, you're leaving their judgment to God, not yourself. And so you have an attitude of forgiveness. But transactional forgiveness can only take place when someone asks. When did God actually transact forgiveness with you? You weren't actually forgiven. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If someone says he has no sin, if he will not really repent, the full transaction of forgiveness can't take place. But you can have an attitude of grace and forgiveness, but then again, you're really entrusting the whole matter to God. Um, forgiveness is only possible because of the gospel. That... Um, I had a couple one time where the husband in this case had spent their entire retirement savings on prostitutes. He wiped it out. The wife didn't know. They're approaching their 60s. He comes to me, confesses all this. I send him home to tell his wife. The good news is I think this is when he really became a Christian. He was a professing Christian, and um, but... God seems to have really saved him. This is some years ago. And he confesses to the wife. The wife starts coming in. And on one level, she wants to stay married. But on the other level, two separate bedrooms. And it's kind of like we're brother and sister. We're friends. And she's still pretty bitter. And she came in one week. And they moved back into the same room that week. And I asked, why did you decide to do that? And she said, well, it was Good Friday. I went to church. And the pastor told me what Christ did for me described the crucifixion and I realized if Jesus could do that for me then it's not a big thing for me to do that for my husband that I can show the grace to him that God has shown me which is exactly what Ephesians 4.32 says be kind and compassionate to one another forgiving each other as God in Christ has also forgiven you the gospel empowers forgiveness Uh, the peacemakers talk about the promises of forgiveness I'm not going to think about it I'm not going to talk about it I'm not going to tell other people about it and I'm not going to let it hinder our relationship, meaning full forgiveness is a restoration of relationship. Not, I forgive you, but you still have to keep making it up to me by doing penance. Not, I forgive you, but the sexual relationship doesn't resume. Full forgiveness is full forgiveness. And if I think we ought to be patient as counselors, or the guilty party ought to be patient. If the spouse says, I'm really glad you're seeking my forgiveness, I'm really open to that, I just need some time. I think that's one time when... I would want to show some patience. I wasn't admonishing this lady now or else. Um, and then the innocent spouse is going to face challenges. She's going to be tempted to bring up the past. She may have unhelpful influence. Uh, you know, bad company corrupts good morals. <laughs> Don't be deceived about that either. First Corinthians fifteen thirty three. A lot of times, well-meaning family members who take the innocent party's side will exhort them to dump the bum while you've got the chance and will not understand gospel grace, or even opening the possibility of gospel grace. You'll be tempted to try to play God and want revenge or payment or anger, and not realize, I mean, having to remember that God is judge, not you, 
and that God has been gracious to you. You may be tempted to fear being alone or being hurt again. And again, again, you have to trust that God is your shield and your fortress and you can trust in him. There may be setbacks. You may find a text message that seems to undermine everything. There may be angry words. And sometimes there are non-fatal setbacks that slow things down, but grace may be possible. And then something Tim Lane said, he was here last year, I think is really profound. Forgiveness is both an event and a process. You choose to forgive, and once you've chosen to forgive, you're choosing to keep forgiving. And that's going to require ongoing effort. Some people say, well, I'm not sure I really forgave him because I said I forgave him, but then I keep thinking about it and getting mad. Well, no, you forgave him. You transacted the forgiveness. Now you're being tempted to go back on it. You have to keep reminding yourself of God's grace to you, remembering the unmerciful servant parable that God has forgiven you the 10,000 talents, and it's right that you forgive the 100 denarii, but it's hard. It doesn't say it's easy, and after it's been done, it may still be hard for a while. And then, I've already mentioned this briefly, I'm not going to have time to cover it in detail, but you don't want, you know, to me, dealing with the issues of sin in the marriage, not just the adultery, but all the other sin in the marriage is like you've got a, a, a garden full of weeds, and you've got to pull the weeds before you can grow the, grow the flowers. You have to pull all kinds of weeds, not just the adultery weed, the lying weeds and the misspent money weeds and the bitterness weeds, and not just the weeds of the adulterer, but the weeds of the one who did not commit adultery. But as those issues are dealt with through grace, as the chief of sinners forgives the other chief of sinners, then you can plant the flowers. And sometimes it's like at this point, it's like you're starting all over again. I could, this is where like Wayne Mack strengthening your marriage is like, let's start over as if it's pre-marriage counseling. <laughs> and let's rebuild something better than you had before. And Dave Harvey's When Sinners Say I Do is also just excellent for that in terms of let's build a marriage based on grace. Let's build a marriage where we're quick to confess our sins and show grace to each other even we know how to correct each other in a, a humble, godly way as helpers to each other. Uh, sometimes there can be a formal recommitment in the marriage covenant. We've had cases with IBCD. I've had a couple cases once I was invited and I think also to participate in kind of a, a renewing of a covenant that had been violated and a recommitment of the vows that had been made. And again, so you're not just trying to go back to where they're, that what would make them hopeless. Yeah, we'll, we'll try to get back to where things were a month before you learned about this. Now, the hope is that perhaps for the first time, and we've seen cases where we really believe that marriages have not just been put back together where they stayed married, but they actually began to experience far more of God's ideal of grace in marriage and husband loving his wife sacrificially, the wife respecting her husband. In this one case recently to which I referred where there's been Glorious progress, of, you know, as far as I can see. Again, I, I really see now they care about each other, understand each other, communicate better than they did a year before the affair. And that is God's grace, and that is what God can do. At the end of your notes, there's a summary that our God is a God who can rescue adulterers and adulteresses and restore relationships. Humpty Dumpty can be put back together. And one proof of that is that we were all spiritual adulterers and adulteresses. And yet, we were Gomer and Hosea, if you will. And Christ has redeemed us. Our bridegroom has loved us, purified us, and made us his own. And that is what God can still do in relationships now. Let me pray.
Father in heaven, you know the situations of those in this room and what we're already facing and what we will face in the future. I thank you that you are able to give grace, that there would be forgiveness and repentance and restoration. Help us to faithfully minister your word of hope, and we thank you that the gospel is powerful enough to restore what we have broken by our sin. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for coming. Copyright 2013, IBCD, All Rights Reserved. More free audios can be found on our website at www.ibcd.org.